Good morning, Midway Community Church. Good to see all of you. My name is Travis. I am one of the pastors here, and I really like reading biographies, uh, particularly presidential uh, biographies. My wife thinks that that is really, really boring. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, Someday, my goal is to get through all of them. I'm not even halfway there yet, because I tend to get kind of bogged down when I find a president that I'm reading about, who I really, really admire, I tend to want to read more about just them, and so I'll go through two or three biographies on that individual. Um, uh, Lincoln, for instance, I've read a few on him, uh, surely my favorite president uh, that I'm familiar with, uh, and I'm pretty sure Abraham Lincoln was not a Christian. Uh, We have multiple quotes from different points in his life where he states that explicitly. Um, But then... Two years before his assassination, we also have this quote and ones like it that follow. This one is from dialogue with an Illinois pastor. Lincoln said to him, when I left Springfield, I asked the people to pray for me, though I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. Yes, I do love Jesus. Based on his own words, I think our 16th president was resting on Christ the day he died. Um, He was neither a perfect man nor was he a perfect president, but when he offered in 1863 uh, a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, here's what he said. It's a few sentences. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Can you imagine this coming from the highest offices in our land today? But listen, a strange thing happens when a national leader humbles himself before God. God tends to listen. And that is um, exactly what we're going to see, maybe nowhere more clearly than in the book of Jonah, chapter 3. If you've been with us, then you know that we tried to wrap around last week's uh, Missions Encounter weekend, uh, this short series through the book of Jonah. And if you were here uh, with us for uh, the last couple of sermons on this, um, we saw Jonah's attempted flight to Tarshish. We saw him swallowed by a great fish. We saw him vomited out upon the beach. I told you that one of the things that I hate most in life is throwing up, but surely worse than throwing up is being thrown up. Uh, And that's where we left Jonah at the end of chapter two. Uh, He's 
covered in who knows what. Um, imagine he's smelling really fragrant around this point. Um, but now he's offered a second chance. And as we get ready to read this, I want to say to you that it's here in the third chapter of Jonah that we find the high point of this narrative, regardless of what has come before, remarkable events, miraculous happenings, however great all that, the most remarkable thing and the greatest miracle in this book of Jonah is the result of Jonah's preaching. So Jonah chapter 3, if you haven't already opened up to it, or if you don't have your own Bible, um, the church Bibles, this is on page 775. We encourage one another to to follow along and keep our Bibles open um, to make sure what is being said is true. We're going to start at Jonah 3 and verse 1. Hear now the very word of our Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. And put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All right, we're going to try and uh, come at this by dividing it into three sections. And then for each one of those sections, I'm going to try and give you a summary truth or a key takeaway to kind of, you know, hang the, the application of that section on. Um, the first section, uh, these are outlined in your program First four verses we're going to call repentant servant. Repentant servant. Although, honestly, even that title, um, it kind of needs an asterisk because by the time we get to chapter four next week, it's not entirely clear, you know, how repentant Jonah really ever was. Uh, We can't read other people's hearts, but it, it is an open question. But as, you know, as we were working through this book, I remember my daughter's um, last soccer game last season when they won their little uh, divisional championship, and it was so sweet, and there was trophies, and there was munchkins, and lemonade, and coaches were handing out stuffed animals uh, that matched their team nickname, and then a long time afterwards, there's, there's backflips, and there's running around, and giggling, and laughing, and you know, I'm just hanging out there with a few other dads, just really delighting in the show. It was just fun to watch for quite a while. And then after quite a while, it was, you know, honey, time to go. 
and everything slowed to slow motion. Quarter speed at best. My daughter had been having a great time, and she did not want to go, and now it was time to go. Um, she had been called, but she did not want to listen, and it is a perfect picture of this reluctant prophet, Jonah. Um, if you were here in week one, God said, Jonah, go to the piano. <laughs> Jonah said, no, I, I think I'm going to go over here and just kind of hide behind the organ for a while. And of course, whenever God says go to the piano and you go to the organ instead, it's a bad choice. Amen? And there's like 3,000 miles between the, the piano and the organ. There's like 3,000 miles between Nineveh, where he's supposed to go, and Tarshish, where he really goes. And so he doesn't even make it to, to Tarshish. Um, he gets pitched overboard, and you know, there's the, the whale that shows up. Um, God miraculously preserves his life underwater for three days, um, where Jonah has very little to do there other than just talk to God. And so an outline of the book starts to form. Chapter one, God talks to Jonah. Chapter two, Jonah talks to God. Chapter three, today, God talks through Jonah. And chapter four, we'll get there, Jonah talks back. And did anyone notice, as we read this morning, how the start of chapter three almost exactly mirrors the start of chapter one? In fact, if you just kind of flip between the pages, if those are on different pages in your Bible, you go back to chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You look at chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Then you go to chapter 3, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. You go back to chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Chapter 3, verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to where? Yeah, I'll bet he did. <laughs> three days in a fish tends to make one rather compliant. The point is that now, in chapter 3, this morning, it's like the whole plot rewinds and we're having to start it over again. But my goodness, it took a whole lot of suffering to get us there. And isn't that how it often is? It, it would have been a whole lot easier if this book was just chapter 3. But because of Jonah, it also has to be chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4. And so, you know, a key truth starts to bubble out of this stuff. Here it is. God invites us to obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. This is really important. So much so, I left blanks in the program for you to even write it in. That God invites us to obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. And if that sounds a little bit childlike, that is because Sarah and I have been using that phrase for 13 years now, countless times with our own children, training them, this is what obedience looks like right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And when you think about it, I'm not sure Jonah had any of those pieces. He surely didn't obey right away. He actually went quite the other direction. <laughs> I don't think he obeyed all the way. His preaching here, it's truncated at best. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and he didn't obey with a happy heart because by the time we get to chapter four, it's clear that deep down Jonah wasn't praying for the Ninevites' salvation. He was actually praying against it. 
Lord, please help the people to ignore my message and close their hearts, which is not the the prayer I offer for y'all every Sunday morning. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, it actually wasn't because he was afraid of what the Ninevites would do to him. He was afraid of what God would do for the Ninevites. And I guess we can sympathize. We can sympathize when you think about it. Because we move into our second point here. How would you feel if God said to you, I am sending you to proclaim grace to the great, 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 great granddaddies of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And by the way, they were just as bad then as they are today. Okay? Might not be all that excited about it either ourselves, which is then what makes this part of the narrative so remarkable. Second header in your bulletin, repentant city. Yeah, repentant servant, kind of, maybe, not really. <laughs> and then you've got repentant city. Um, remember, Nineveh sat just about where modern-day uh, Mosul, Iraq, sits. Um, and it was an amazing city. We, we don't think it, that at this time it was the capital of Syria, but it was uh, of Assyria. It was certainly the, the center of commerce for Assyria, um, which means it might not have been Washington, D.C., but it was New York City. Nineveh was not the king's residence, but it did have king's palaces. It was a major metropolitan area, and it was pagan in the extreme. In fact, if you hold your finger here in the Bible and flip forward just a few pages to a book called Nahum, how many of you have recently done your devotions out of Nahum? (laughs) Right, because none of you would be encouraged by Nahum. It's a terrible book. It's God's word. (laughs) tells us things we need to know. It's just not the kind of book you hang on your dining room wall and be encouraged by. But if you, if you do flip to there now, um, Nahum uh, in chapter 3. So Nahum was like maybe three or four generations after Jonah. And in chapter 3, he kind of gives us a glimpse of their wickedness that has sprouted up again um, in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, chapter 3, verse 1, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, uh, verse 3, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations, and it just goes on from there. This is not the stuff that they place in the brochure that the Chamber of Commerce puts out to, to drum up tourism. Nineveh was a place, if you read through the whole book, of, of witchcraft, of child prostitution, human sacrifice, and murder. It was also one of the most impressive metropolises of its time. Best food in the world was there. Cultural hub. City walls, get this, that were so thick Three chariots could ride side by side upon them. And so when you hear all of that, it's hard not to be a little bit skeptical that repentance, like citywide revival, actually happened the way it's described here in the Bible. Okay, a couple notes on that. Um, At this point in her history, it's helpful to know Assyria was not at the zenith of its power. It was in decline here. Um, We also know there were all kinds of tribes, uh, tribes rather, they had um, banded together. They were called the Novartians, and they were attacking the frontiers of the nation. 
So that's a kind of a constant background threat now. Uh, we also know Assyria was in the midst of a seven-year uh, famine. We can, we can ping all this because we know when Jeroboam was the king in Israel, and so you can compare the timelines, and we have archaeology and other stuff and, uh, that's helped us as well. Um, there also may have been a very large earthquake that uh, devastated significant portions of the country at this time. It's not super clear whether that happened now or that happened a few decades afterwards. Um, there was definitely, though, around this time, there was a, uh, a total solar eclipse. So um, the point is, there was, there was this circumstantial stuff happening, which may have made the people a little bit more inclined to pay attention to a foreign prophet representing a God that they did not know. I, I think that that's helpful to kind of have in the back of our minds. But bottom line, God did something miraculous here. Okay? He, he softened the hearts of a city Because God delights in mercy. Do you know that? God delights in mercy far more than he ever would in judgment. Jonah, I'm not sure how much he's into the mercy thing. Um, For instance, when it comes to his preaching here, uh, if you guys noticed it, kind of feels like he did the bare minimum. (laughs) You remember the kid in English class who was like always really, really gratified to chase the D minus? (laughs) Because it just... Just got him to the next grade. That's a little how Jonah's preaching feels. Um, it's at the end of verse 4. He kept your Bibles open. Um, what takes eight words in English only takes five in Hebrew. Yode, Arbaim, Ve, Nineveh, Yom, Nepakat. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I suppose that could be a summary of Jonah's preaching. That's possible, but based on his attitude, I'm thinking he didn't offer a whole lot more than that. 40 days, y'all are on fire. That's his sermon tweet. (laughs) Not seeker sensitive. (laughs) Yet God's spirit, he took those five words and he applies it to the people with urgency and reality such that they repented. They put on sackcloth, which was thick, coarse um, cloth made from goat's hair. It was symbolic of um, you know, setting aside the um, privileges and the, and the comforts uh, of this world. Um, the response, verse 5, was from the greatest to the least, it says. So there was no class. There was no section of Ninevite society that believed that they were exempt from humbling themselves before God. This is remarkable, folks. I mean, I know it's not a whale swallowing a guy. It's way more remarkable than that. To God's word, the pagans were more responsive than the prophet. The pagans were more responsive than the prophet. Jonah had, he had all the lineage, all the knowledge, all the oracles of God. The Ninevites had five words, and it was enough. Might that be a warning to us, by the way? We have the building, we have the community of grace, and gosh, I love you people, (laughs) but is it not possible that in the midst of all of that, we grow deaf to God's word? Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren, he used to say, the man who lives beside Niagara will in time no longer hear its roar. There is a way, Christian, that we allow ourselves to become so desensitized 
to the voice of God that we can actually create a path straight to hell from the very gate of heaven. And so I think when it comes to this repentant city, the, the key truth here is that repentance begins by believing what God says is true. That's the second one in your outline. Repentance begins by believing what God says is true. That's how the whole revival starts, if you didn't notice that. If you look at verse 5, and the people of Nineveh, what? They believed. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Verse 5 is then what kicks over the other dominoes. Verse 6, the king receives the word, then he bends his knee. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get a king off of his throne? And it's kind of a foreshadowing of that Old Testament or New Testament picture when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's verse 6. Then the next domino falls. Verse 7, the king decrees a fast, which means to intentionally give up a need or want of the flesh to recognize a greater need of the soul. That's why we fast. I don't know if that's part of your spiritual disciplines that's built in the warp and woof of your devotional life, the occasional fast, but we intentionally give up a need or want of the flesh to recognize a greater need of the soul. And then that leads to verse 8, which is mind-blowing. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Violence was the stock and trade for the city of Nineveh. In fact, a century before this, there was a king named Ash... Asher Nasser Paul II, and he was the one who actually systematized the procedure for how you take care of a hostile city once it has been conquered. You guys ready for this? You burn all their buildings, you mutilate all the male prisoners, you then pile them up in a great heap outside where they would perish either from their wounds, from the heat of the sun, or from suffocation of the bodies. The children simultaneously were all burned alive at the stake. And the chief, well, he was taken back to the Assyrian capital where he was flayed alive for the king's entertainment. This is the kind of people God wanted to save. People who, by the time we get to verse 9, are hoping and pleading for mercy. Turns out, God's compassion has no borders. (laughs) The mercy of God knows no bounds. Which means, whatever baggage you brought into your church this morning, or however long you've been running from God because of all the things you've done, which you've determined really can't ever completely be forgiven, And the Ninevites were not disqualified from God's grace. Neither are you. Because we head in our last point here. I want you to consider, Medway Community Church, what lies around us, okay? You know the, the fastest growing religious demographic in the United States today? Do you know what it is? It's the nuns, not the Sound of Music nuns. It's the, the religiously non-affiliated. In our state, 42% of the people in Massachusetts self-identify as religiously non-affiliated. Zero affiliation. That's 3 million people in Massachusetts alone. This should break our heart. And then you add to that, 
you know, the, the, just the, the cultural Christians and other religions, and the number's a little bit closer to six million people. Tens of thousands, this means, that we drive by every single day who have no idea the hope and fulfillment that Christ offers and the eternal life that Jesus brings. <laughs> Church, we, we, got a, we got a story to tell and a message to proclaim, and that's why I'm so very, very grateful for the final point in our text, which we're going to call repentant God. Repentant God. We got repentant servant, repentant city, Last one, repentant God. And unless you are reading from the King James Bible, who's reading from the King James Bible in here? For real? Not a soul. Oh, I should just skip over this point then. Never mind. <laughs> so if you were reading from the King James, um, then you would, you would, this, this word would not surprise you when it's attributed to God. I, I recognize 98% of the time when we talk about repentance, we're talking about um, regret, sorrow, uh, remorse, for our sins. That's how we talk about it. That's how I, I preach it. But then you also have the King James Bible, 1611, so pretty old, right? And it's using the word repentant here at the end of the text in that old-fashioned way where it means to hold back, to be moved, to pity, to relent from anger. That's what God does to this city <laughs> because he delights in, mer- excuse me, in mercy. He repents, he relents from his, his wrath toward them. Um, a long time ago, there was, a, there was a preacher in Scotland. His name was Dr. Alexander White. And he had a, a grumpy lawyer slash parishioner. So he was also his lawyer. He was in his church. Um, he was an old man in his 80s. And uh, White had to visit him on business. So he rode his horse out to his, um, uh, his farm. And um, when they were finished with the lawyer business, this old man... His parishioner, 80 years old, he leaned forward and he asked his pastor, have you any word for an old sinner? And doctor, I guess Dr. White was, he was a little bit nonplussed and he wasn't expecting that, so he just quoted from the end of Micah 7, which he'd been looking at earlier that, that day. And he replied to the man, good sir, God delighted in mercy. God delighted in mercy. Micah chapter 7. Next day he received a a letter from that old man who wrote that, that he had been going through such a time of profound inner darkness and those four words God had used to send a shaft of light right into his heart. That God delighteth in mercy. And there has got to be in a size of this room, there's got to be some of us who just need the message. God's not mad at you. God's not just angry with you. But he delights in mercy to you. God's desire when we have sinned and we've broken covenant with him, God's desire is not just to pay you back. It's to bring you back. That's why God sent us Christ. Because God delights in mercy. So you and I, we don't have to cajole God's kindness. It's his very nature. Which means, for the third key truth that we put in your program, our hope is not in the power of our repentance, but in the compassion of our God. 
Our hope is not in the power of our repentance. It's in the compassion of our God. You want to see revival like Nineveh sweep over our nation. It's happened twice before, right? What were they? It was the great awakening. Good. And then it was the, the second one's a little easier. It's the second great awakening. All right. We we need to preach more on just flat history here. First Great Awakening, 1700s on this continent. Second Great Awakening, 1800s. And now, if we want to see, you know, a third one of those sweep over America, how's it going to happen? It's going to happen with men and women. It always starts in the church. Historically, revival always begins among the people of God first, and then it spreads out. So it means that men and women in the church, we take our pride and we take our self-reliance We take our our cultural Christianity and we throw it at the foot of the cross. We humble ourselves. And then we look in compassion to the men or women around us. Here's here's a point of application. It's kind of of easy. Easter is in what now? Two weeks? Okay. How about we spend the next one week and we we just pray for one. Just one Man or woman, boy or girl. In your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, your classroom. Pray for one. It's got to be someone that you're in, in reasonable contact with. And it's got to be someone that, that, that you, you have some reason to think maybe they need a church family that they don't, they don't have right now. Why don't you take one week and pray for one. And then second week... Take a chance and invite them to church. On Easter morning, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to do my very best not to say things that will embarrass you. (laughs) That is not a guarantee. It's it's just a good effort. (laughs) The music will be great. That I can promise you. The kids program is outstanding. And we're going to do our very best that morning to make the gospel crystal clear. But we got to start with prayer. Please don't do this like between Good Friday and Easter. Because <laughs> you like feel, feeling spiritual for 24 hours. Pray it. Pray it through. Um, the British revivalist Campbell Morgan, he used to say, revival cannot be scheduled. Okay? Do you guys know that? You can't put up a tent and call it a revival and it's a revival. That, that, we see that down south, but it doesn't really work that way. And then up north, we don't even attempt it. <laughs> Revival, it doesn't work that way anywhere. Revival, it cannot be scheduled, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when the grace of God blows upon his people. Isn't that good? And it's theologically spot on. Revival cannot be scheduled, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when the grace of God blows upon his people. Listen. As a poor young man who did his mathematics on the back of a coal shovel, Lincoln, he rejected God. He paid him lip service, but he rejected the grace of God. In the agony of his own son's death, Lincoln rejected God. But standing on a battlefield in Pennsylvania where 30,000 of his fellow countrymen slaughtered each other, God came to him again. And the king finally bent the knee. (laughs) And we go way before that. 
to Nineveh, which is a very wicked place. And the king was a very wicked man. But then God repented. He relented from anger. He brought his word to bear on that city. And the entire city bent the knee. And then we jump forward to 21st century Massachusetts. And you guys will agree with me that we live in a world where there's a whole lot of speculation, but there's not a whole lot of revelation. (laughs) We tend to give off a lot of heat, but not always so much light. Yet when the mercy of God comes, people change. Institutions change. Entire nations change. And God delights in mercy. And it usually starts with us bending the knee. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.